Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we continue our Clash of Orders mini-series. We are talking to various distinguished intellectuals and experts to explore more about the concept of order and how different world powers define it. Last time we talked with Rana Mitter about the Chinese understanding of order and today I'm very happy to welcome Asla Aydin Tashbash who's going to tell us more about the Turkish perspective. Asla has been on the podcast many times before. She's an Associate Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR but is currently speaking to me from Washington where she's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and before joining ECFR Asla had a very successful career in journalism most recently as a columnist at Milliet but she's done as much as anyone to get into the mind of the Turkish elite and to explain to the rest of the world how the globe looks like from a Turkish perspective. Asla, thank you very much for joining. Hi Mark, great to be here. So I've got these five questions about order which I'm asking all of our guests on this podcast and trying to get them to explain to our listeners some of the sort of mental furniture which people have in different parts of the world when they look out at this world in disorder which we're inhabiting. And the first question is really about what the top five threats are to order today uh, and in the near future and also how they relate to one another. So from a Turkish perspective, what do you think are the top few issues on the plates of the Turkish elite? Well, obviously, it depends on who you ask in Turkey. But if we focus on the current elite, ruling elite, that is to say President Erdogan and his friends in the state apparatus, I think among the top threats right now, perhaps uh, pushing back against a Western-dominated world order is important. Erdogan believes Turkey is almost a risen power, that it is destined, just like the Ottoman Empire, to be a peer competitor to Europe. And the, the one hurdle is that he lives in a Western-dominated world and as Turkey is pegged to that regime still. And I think he, he sort of wants to push back against it, resents US supremacy on, on NATO issues. And I think in some instances, he does see a sense of US encirclement or Western efforts to prevent Turkey's rise. And this is very obvious when he speaks in Turkish. You know, there's a difference in terms of the discourse in Turkish, as opposed to what people say at NATO summits or UN ANGA meetings. But so the one issue is Erdogan's belief that Turkey is already a risen power, almost a risen power, it, that it's destined to be a peer competitor to Europe in a great power competition. This is uh, not true. It's, it is a rising power for sure, but not a risen power. And that discrepancy between what it is and what it thinks it ought to be is always the source of tension with the West. So he sees things like coup attempt or U.S. efforts to upgrade the military alliance with Greece or, you know, European criticism of human rights, all as efforts in a very self-centered way. These are all efforts to prevent Turkey's inevitable rise, which he thinks is bound to happen and preferably under his rule. I think second threat from a Turkish angle is clearly instability in the MENA region, in the Middle East. Now, here in this town, I've been here for two weeks now as a visiting fellow, and hardly anyone has mentioned Syria or Middle East. 
or terrorism. These are all very passé. But for Turkey, next to Syria, embroiled in the conflict there, living with the 5 million refugees from Syria, official figures are 3.7, unchanged for the past 10 years. But in reality, I think it's, it's quite a bit more than that. So Syria is still not just a threat, but also uh, something that is linked to Turkey's own domestic evolution because of the Kurdish component. So the Kurdish issue is, of course, very much a litmus test of what Turkey itself is. And the current regime considers the rising Kurdish presence in Syria or elsewhere as a threat. In the past, this was very different also under Erdogan. Turkey seeing itself as possibly a great power on par to being a greater regional power, a regional superweight with the Kurds. Uh, that's changed now. And then thirdly, in terms of threat perceptions, for a country that wants strategic autonomy, the question is, is Russia a threat? Russian expansion, Russian aggression, or Russian expansionism in the area, the war in Ukraine. And Turkey is a little bit schizophrenic on that issue. On the one hand, Erdogan has used his relationship with Putin and Russia as a way to expand his strategic relevance to the West, really playing both sides of the equation, and I think very skillfully, and making himself very relevant to the war in Ukraine by the, Turkey's position in the Bosphorus and the Turkish Straits, but also selling drones to Ukraine and all of that. So uh, on the other hand, Russian expansion, Russian control of the Black Sea, Russian presence in Syria is also clearly a strategic problem for Turkey, for a country like Turkey. It's historically been a strategic problem. So on this whole issue of whether or not Russia is a threat, you know, given the close relationship with Putin now, the close economic relationship and the balancing act with when it comes to the war in Ukraine, it's a bit of a bipolar answer I can give you. But um, that's the, some of the immediate threats, I think, from the Turkish angle. And how does the idea of China feature in the Turkish mind? A very distant idea, important, but they have still not managed to establish the type of uh, relationship with China that they have with Russia. I think uh, there is a common view uh, in terms of pushing ba back against Western-dominated world order and Erdogan actually brings this up every year in, at the United Nations uh, General Assembly by presenting his own reform agenda for ANGA with the slogan that the world is greater than five. But China and Turkey have not established the economic relationship or the political coordination that Turkey has with Russia. Okay, so this brings us to the second question, which is what, what's the most common mental model for Turkish leaders when they think about future order? Is it of a multipolar world, a bipolar world split between China and the US? Is it a US-centric or a Sinocentric world or one of regional integration? How do people imagine when they think about future orders? Multipolar and with the reduced role of US supremacy and enhanced role for Turkey, Turkey being one of the key players in, a great, in an age of great power competition. I think that's very clear, very clear in his uh, the world is bigger than five slogan in Turkey. And I think it's also very clear in Erdogan's infatuation with uh, the Ottoman Empire and what it 
represented. He believes in Turkish exceptionalism, that it's the country is going to pursue its own destiny, which is inevitably of a strategically autonomous course and one that will be consequential for Turkey's own immediate neighborhood, very clearly focused on the former Ottoman geography as a potential backyard or sphere of influence for Turkey. And I think that when Turks, the current Turkey, Turkish elite think of a future order, it's clearly multipolar. And is it a multipolar world of sovereign states or is it a multipolar world of civilizations? I mean, how, or is it a religious multipolarity? What, what are the poles in their minds? There, there is no clarity on that, states. Uh, for sure, but occasionally you hear the more sort of uh, thinkers from Erdogan's uh, Justice and Development Party or people around him like Ibrahim Kalan, his spokesman, also talk about civilizational aspects of what the Ottoman order or the Turkish order in Turkey's own geography would mean. He's written books about Ottoman or Turkish presence in the Balkans, describing the Ottoman period, and this is common for Turkish elite now, describing the Ottoman, Ottoman order as something, Pax Ottomanica, I think, is as something that essentially very different from the Western-led order. In their vision, or in their uh, self-description, the Ottoman order was firm but just. Fairness is a common theme that you often hear about. This is, of course, a little bit tone-deaf, to be honest with you, because it is how Turkey sees its past from Istanbul and if it's, it's rather different, uh, what history uh, means, what this history meant is rather different if you go pe ask people in Serbia or Greece and, or even Arab countries. But from the Turkish perspective right now, with huge obsession with Ottoman order and Ottoman era, that was a civilization and a civilizational experience that was essentially non-imperialist non-exploitative and firm but just and this is i think something that erdogan sees as essentially also in sync with islamic principles of governance in what can you for people who don't know as much about the ottoman imperial era as you do what in what way is it not imperialist well, I would actually push back against this interpretation that uh, Ankara is pushing now. But in their worldview, the 600 years of Ottoman rule brought peace, which a peace and stability, which is prioritized over freedoms and democracy because it brought about, sustained the well-being of uh, large numbers of people. There is a sense of fairness in the imagination of current Turkish leaders that Ottoman Empire represented because it allowed different communities live and abide by their religions at a time when Europe experienced pogroms or, or sort of more or religious wars. Turks taxed non-Muslims more, but that they have lived side by side. And uh, I think that multiculturalism is something that uh, they emphasize as sort of the appeal of great power. So the rise of Turkey is to benefit, the rise of Ottomans was to benefit the neighboring states and peoples. Now, of course, this is rather, this interpretation is 
uh, quite often rejected if you ask an Albanian or, or a Greek person who sees 600 years of Ottoman rule as another form of imperialism, uh, particularly right now in the Balkans, you know, do they have gained their independence from the Ottomans? And that marks the beginning of their national ethos. So that outright interpretation is rejected. But somehow I think the Turkish self-image as something in opposition to what the West is, is become more and more important as Turkey thinks of the future and its own future and the future world order. And there's definitely references to the Ottoman Empire in that reimagination. So the third question is about the, the rules-based order, which many people feel is under attack at the moment. From a Turkish perspective, is there a rule-based order? Uh, was there a rule-based order? Or was it just a kind of a, an order that was imposed by the victors of, of World War II and who didn't necessarily obey the rules themselves? I think there was a rules-based rules order and Turkey was the beneficiary of that order. Turkey sided with the West since World War II and was a card-carrying member of the Transatlantic Alliance, a gold member of the Transatlantic Alliance. Uh, it was status quo power, really resisting changes in borders and in nation-state structures. And I think, you know, it, Turkey has been a member of NATO since 1952. That is a long time ago. And this Western-dominated world order allowed Turkey to attach itself to the powerful First League, but also to economically and politically thrive. I think, uh, I remember, you know, covering Turkey starting from late 90s uh, and you know huge emphasis on human rights how did we do how well did we do did we you know huge emphasis on democracy and democratization reform and so on in the, in the 90s and 2000s all of those were a result of the fact that Turkey was firmly in the western camp uh, I remember things like President Clinton's visit just, I didn't cover this I was you know still I think in, in college but I have gone back and watched clips and read uh, his press statements, his visit to Turkey, during which he is giving a press conference with President Demirel at the time. And among the questions people asked, what about torture in Turkey? That was a big topic when I was in, uh, growing up, that there is torture and Turkey is trying to stamp it out. And huge debates on how successful it was, you know, whether it did well, not do well, but you know, Imagine Turkish reporters asking Clinton about torture in Turkey and Clinton said a few things I don't remember and then President Demirel said yes, there is torture in Turkey, but it's not systematic We're trying to eradicate that this conversation is unthinkable It's unthinkable that there would be a Turkish reporter asking about torture It's unthinkable there would be a Turkish reporter asking about democratization or human rights It's unthinkable that, that a US president would take a question like that or so, you know, I just remember that episode, uh, something that I read going back in the annals of history, but many events like that. Turkey was firmly in the Western camp and it, it was also a beneficiary of the liberal order, but now it's no longer seeing democracy or the liberal order as something that helps Turkey's uh, larger national security goals. Uh, the world has changed, multipolarity, and I think hedging is clearly what President Erdogan thinks is something that is able to deliver more to Turkey. Just to add, 
if you go to Istanbul, there's a new airport. It's very big, quite impressive. It's one of the crown jewels of Erdogan era, I think, uh, in terms of uh, things, infrastructure projects that he's proud of. Uh, two observations, and that says a lot about how Turkey is thinking of the world and its place in the world. One is the airport is packed with the majority is non-European travelers coming from Central Asia or Africa or parts of Asia, going to some place in Europe or Latin America, but passing through Istanbul as a hub. And secondly, the signs, just Turkish, Russian, Chinese, Arabic and English. But almost everywhere you see signs in Arabic and Russian as well. And lots of Russian language spoken by people from Eastern Europe or Central Asia. So I think it tells us a lot about the future direction of Turkey or where it wants to go. So um, you're describing quite a big shift from one way of looking at the world to another. To, to what extent do you think that Turks believe that there should be universal rules and that your rules can be universal? Or is it more now a belief that there's a sort of balance of power and that every civilization should try and um, have as much control over their former sphere of influence as they can and you kind of rub up against each other and, and the big players will kind of work out how to handle that as Turkey has been doing on its own borders with Russia and with the US and other players. You well it's definitely the latter, balances of power and former spheres of influence and sort of managing relationship with other imperial powers in terms of your sphere of influence such as the South Caucasus for Turkey, where they have to tread gingerly on a territory where Russia, this being post-former Soviet territory, an area where Russia is influential. Similarly, Turks are very careful when it comes to Moldova and, you know, uh, they were very careful before the Ukraine invasion about Ukraine and to this day, despite selling drones to Ukraine, they are using a very cautious language about the Russian invasion of that country. Meaning you never hear a moral argument in Turkey from Turkish officials about the Russian invasion. You don't hear the moral pushback against Russian and uh, it's more about the balancing act, which is hailed as a as a great invention and a great thing for Turkey to do. But in terms of uh, concepts of power, uh, I think justice is almost always something that's underlined, a key factor in, a, in, a, in the Turkish order or future, a desired future Turkish order. And, um, you know, justice and power are more important than freedom or democratization or democracy, in fact. We've gone um, seamlessly into this fourth question, which is how, how does Turkey define these key concepts of power, freedom and justice? So you, one of the things you've done very interestingly is to kind of hierarchize them. But so ju you're saying that justice is more important than, than freedom. But if you unpack them, do you think that Turks think in similar terms about power or freedom and justice to other players? Or is there a different content to it? I think Turks want recognition of uh, Turkey in their sphere of influence, their future sphere of influence, uh, clearly punching above Turkey's current weight, 
this is clear. You know, Turkey is not Russia. Turkey is not a great power yet. Turkey is not China. I think there is a discrepancy between Erdogan's sense of Turkey's power and Turkey's real power. But they do want a recognition of sphere of influence in which, uh, and I think the emphasis on justice, delivering justice, feeding people, creating a stable order is very, very important. Themes that are clearly more important in describing how Turkey wants to position itself and its particularly in the Middle East, more important than democratization or elections. And a good example is Syria, I think. In parts of territory where Turkey runs, and there is a 30-kilometer stretch on Turkey's borders where you have now Turkey-backed groups or even Turkey controlling several towns with something like 1.5 million people living directly under Turkish rule with Turkish uh, postal service, Turkish banks, and Turkish electricity grid. It's connected to the Turkish electricity grid. I visited that area uh, several years ago and uh, spoke to a Turkish official afterwards, and I was very fascinated by his description of what he was doing there. He, the way he put it, I'm paraphrasing, but he very close to what he said. He said, I understand that what we're doing here is important because we've been away from uh, order setting for about a hundred years and we need to develop our civilizational order setting skills uh, this is a very important experience so you don't hear western officials or i think even russian officials talk like that the west uh, is uninterested in running these uh, far off enclaves and russians are usually very bad at that they don't really care about delivering in terms of social services and, uh, and you know, healthcare and whatnot. The Turks had built these buildings, courthouse, you know, a hospital, and established these mechanisms. And they saw it as a laboratory for a future more powerful Turkey. And I was very interested in that tiny, tiny stretch, but told me about, about how they saw the future. So that brings us to our final question, which is about the past. And, you know, a lot of people grasp for the past when they're trying to understand the present. In Britain, everything is seen as 1938 and the new, you know, the hour of, of British greatness when it was kind of standing up against Hitler's challenge and they, they see um, Chamberlains everywhere, people failing to stand up to it. What are the sort of key episodes in uh, or periods or events in Turkish history that shape the way that Turks understand order today. You talked a lot about the, the Ottoman period. That's obviously a very long stretch of, uh, of history. Are there particular moments in the Ottoman era which are resonant now and which people think are uh, good explanations? Are there other periods of Turkish history or global history which, um, which are invoked when people try and explain what's going on at the moment? There are two significant, I think, historic events uh, that have shaped the current debate in Turkey. One, obviously, is the battle of independence. Uh, Ottoman Empire sides with Germany in World War I, loses all uh, their territory in the Middle East and, and uh, is invaded. Uh, you know, uh, parts of Anatolia are, you have uh, foreign troops, the French, the, uh, etc. 
the British in Istanbul, Italians in southeastern Turkey, and Greeks, of course, in western Turkey. And this, the, the fight led by Ottoman officers, the, the, the war against western occupation at the time, has been the most defining moment in Turkish history, the battle of independence led by Ataturk. So, and I think one thing you, you are struck with when you, speak, when you are a Turkish speaker is how, how deeply anti-Western some of the current conversation is. And uh, I think at the heart of that is this, in our, in, in, is this sort of going back to the battle of independence that this country was founded upon the ashes of an empire despite the West, by pushing back against Western power. Uh, so uh, that is clearly a defining moment and part of the reason why it's so easy for Erdogan to tap into this uh, paranoia about the West and, and claim there's Western encirclement of Turkey, that the West is you know, waking up every day and is thinking of how to prevent Turkey's inevitable rise and he alone is the leader that can figure a way out of that, uh, uh, manage that whole process and, and, and that relationship with the West. But there's another, of course, interesting period that's coming up now, uh, which is the conquest of Istanbul. And I see an emphasis on that, and again, by AKP ruling cadres and Erdogan, 1453. Uh, that's more, you know, it's a propagandist tool. Uh, it's something that speaks to conservatives and, and Islamists in Turkey. But I think it's, it says a lot about, once again, a lot about how Turkey sees itself because there is a revisionist way of thinking about uh, Ottoman Empire and Ottoman rulers, what they represented, but, but Mehmet the Conqueror, who obviously defeated the Byzantium armies and uh, uh, the conquest of Istanbul, is almost always described as fair, just, someone who created an order, changed the status quo and created an order which made the empire a peer competitor to Europe and European powers in France in an age of uh, great power competition. And I think this sort of more propagandist domestic narrative and uh, uh, now Istanbul, the conquest of Istanbul is celebrated every year on I think 26th of May with fireworks and big celebrations and all. This is new. When I grew up in Turkey, I, when I went to you know, school and uh, learned how to read and write, the Ottoman Empire was not necessarily a good thing throughout my schooling. It was, the, the, the Republic was a great thing under Ataturk because it was described as a great thing because it was secular, whereas the Ottoman Empire was backward and essentially a failed project. Now Erdogan, over 20 years, has reversed that equation, uh, has clearly repositioned the Ottoman Empire in the imagination of Turks and Turkish citizens, even people who have not voted for him, as something that was great, was interrupted. Now that parenthesis, or the reductionist Turkey, that parenthesis can be closed and we're on to a, a greater path. So I think that's a huge, huge shift in uh, Turkey's thinking and how people think of Turkey's past and future and says a lot about the order that they want to see in the future. Great. So in terms of the future of, of Turkey, Erdogan is obviously somebody who's seeing himself in kind of grand historical terms. Um, so you think that that's the kind of clearest 
possible way of imagining his mandate to bring an end to this idea of, of Turkey as a kind of post-Ottoman, as a sort of Western mimicking um, nation state, and instead it's a revival of the idea of that as a parenthesis, which he's ending. Well, I think that, uh, you know, we have elections coming up in Turkey, uh, 2023, possibly May or June, or April, May or June. And, um, you know, now Erdogan is facing an anti-Erdogan majority. But whatever happens in the election, whether he wins again or loses, I think these ideas are here to stay. So in that sense, I think Erdogan has had a permanent mark in terms of make Turkey great again, uh, becoming a, a guiding principle in terms of how Turks view their role in the world and how the state operates in Turkey's near abroad. Again, when I was growing up, a Turkish military deployment abroad or a Turkish entanglement in Libya or Syria would have been unthinkable because the people who founded the Republic had very bitter lessons from the Ottoman Empire and they felt just stay inside these borders, don't look out because it is nothing but risk and just we have to protect whatever we have. The Republic was founded by bureaucrats, many of whom had roots in the Balkans. They had come back to Istanbul, like my family, as the last fortress. We have nothing but this last castle, what, what, what was something they would say. And so don't look out, don't seek adventure, protect what you have because this is the only homeland we have, we have no place to go. The mood in the country is very different now. And I think because of that, Erdogan's impact is going to outlive the Erdogan period, is my sense. I cannot imagine a future leader of Turkey, no matter how, how committed he is to a rules-based order. I cannot imagine a future leader uh, sort of writing off Turkey's military uh, presence outside of its borders or or just simply describing Turkey as a nation state that is only interested in its own affairs. That is not going to happen, I think. So we are coming to the end of our time, but there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf section. If people want to understand more about this um, civilizational project that you're describing, are, are there any books which you would recommend or articles? There's a book I love. It doesn't tell us about the future, but it tells us a little bit about how Erdogan is dealing with the current Ukraine, Russia, West and West dynamic, the, the playing both sides. Uh, it's uh, about Turkish positioning in World War II. World War II, I just ordered it by Selim Deringil. And I think it's called The Balancing Game. Uh, talks about this ambivalent position as being a key guiding principle for uh, to, to expand Turkey's strategic assets. And I think Erdogan is very much, very much following the same policy. There are wonderful books about late Ottoman Empire, particularly Sultan Abdulhamid, uh, who is someone Erdogan really identifies with. But right now, in terms of what is on my own bookshelf, I just finished a, an interesting article in Foreign Affairs by Richard Haas, uh, talking about some of the uh, points we're talking about here. It's called A Dangerous Decade. 
world in crisis. And I think that's really uh, very helpful in uh, thinking of the future world order. And I'm still reading a science fiction novel that I mentioned in a previous podcast, which is The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson about a futuristic climate-related scenario about global powers and terrorism and activism and whatnot. Wow, that's a lot of stuff for our listeners to enjoy. And we'll put links up to all those publications on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you're using to listen to us on now. You'll find other episodes of this mini-series in that place. And while you're there, if you want to give us a positive review and a five-star rating, we certainly won't complain. It helps other people come to the podcast. But for now, from Asla Aydin Tashbash and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Alpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Marlene Riedel.